This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for cancer patients. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, November 13th, entrepreneur and philanthropist Sean Parker, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and famed oncologists Ned Sharpless, Douglas Lowey, and Zeke Emanuel discussed advances in cancer detection and treatment at the Washington Post's third annual Chasing Cancer Summit. In this segment, Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration Scott Gottlieb and Director of the National Cancer Institute Ned Sharpless discuss the latest advances and challenges in the field of oncology, including precision medicine, immunotherapy, and other innovative treatments. Let's listen. Good morning, I'm Lori McGinley. I'm a health and medicine reporter here at the Washington Post. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm delighted to kick off our discussion about cancer with two very knowledgeable people, Dr. Ned Sharpless, who is director of the National Cancer Institute, and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. We are going to be talking about the latest advances and some of the challenges facing oncology today. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start with a general question uh, about the outlook on cancer. As we just heard in the video, there have been a lot of changes in research and treatments, and in fact, uh, Jim Allison, Uh, recently won the Nobel Prize for his work on immunotherapy, and I think actually today he's celebrating with other Nobel laureates at the Swedish embassy down the street. So, Dr. Sharpless, starting with you, what are the advances over the last few years that you are most excited about, and what do you see as the most promising area in, say, the next five to ten years? Sure, yeah, I think the, um, the major change in cancer care in my lifetime as an oncologist has been this movement from treating every patient sort of more or less the same. So every breast cancer patient we, you know, we gave the same regimen to, or lung cancer we thought of as one thing, to appreciating that even these tissue-specific types of cancer are really many different types of cancer. And, and patients need, if not personalized therapy, at least highly precise therapy based on the molecular makeup of their tumor. And that, that movement to go from treating everything you know, as one entity to highly fragmented uh, care that is different per patient has allowed us to give uh, much better therapies. You know, we have, we have uh, uh, more effective treatments for lung cancers, we heard, more effective treatments for breast cancer with less toxicity. Uh, and so that, that has really allowed us to take an individual patient and measure the features of that patient and treat them based on those results. And that, in turn, has led to, you know, for specific types of therapy, very effective cancers. I mean, for specific types of cancer, very effective therapies like, uh, you know, immuno-oncology for these tumors that have high mutational burdens like lung cancer and melanoma, for example, and uh, other, other now, you know, closing in on over 10 types of cancer where immuno-oncology really works well. And cellular immunotherapy is an interesting approach that's highly patient-specific, and then, you know, the small molecules are also quite effective in certain kinds of cancer. If you match the right drug to the right patient, that's a big deal. You know, for the next five to 10 years, I think that if you take that process to, its, to the next stage, it really involves getting the data from all these patients organized and aggregated in a way so that we can see each specific patient, how they do with a specific treatment. And so that's the ability to learn from every patient. And I think over the next five to 10 years, we will get much better about using data for cancer care. Dr. Gottlieb, what about you? 
Well, you know, the, one of the most profound um, moments, I, I, I had talked um, a little bit about the idea that we can now cure cancer. And, you know, 10 years ago when I was last at FDA, when I used to talk about cure, curing cancer and our ability to expect a cure, um, people were skeptical. Uh, they thought we might be overpromising. And I remember being at ASCO and listening to your speech, and I encourage everyone to go back and look at the speech that, that Ned gave at ASCO, talking about the fact that you know, more and more patients really should expect a cure for cancer. And I think the immunotherapies are making that possible. Um, what we're seeing with respect to the cellular therapies, things like CAR-T, um, we're seeing profound results um, from some of those treatments. And I think that in the very near future, most patients with early stage cancers and maybe many others can expect a cure. But doesn't that raise expectations among the public that maybe cannot be met? And even some of these great advances like precision medicine and immunotherapy, at this point, I believe, are only helping a subset of patients, a minority of patients. I'm just wondering whether you're in danger of having a disconnect between how researchers uh, look at this and how the general public might look at it. And, and again, you said that oncologists should not apologize about talking about cures, but isn't there a risk to that? Yeah, I think um, this is the nuanced job of being a medical oncologist, uh, balancing a realism with hope and optimism. But the perspective I come from is, you know, 20 years ago, we told medical oncologists not to use that word. We said, you know, cure is, that's going to wildly exceed expectations. And, and we were, um, you know, so eager in managing expectations and making sure that patients really, you know, understood the limitations of our therapy that I think we sort of lost the plot in a way and forgot to, to tell patients that, you know, we do have some very effective therapies and, 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 and those newly arrived therapies like immuno-oncology really do appear to have the potential for cure in some patients. But, you know, it's also important to say in the very same breath that uh, we still have a lot of patients dying of cancer. We have some types of cancer like glioma and pancreatic cancer where the progress has not been very good and the therapies there are still lagging. And even patients with melanoma and lung cancer, you know, where we've made a lot of progress, still plenty of people die from those cancers. So uh, one has to be clear that we're making progress, and in some cases a lot of progress, but it is, we still have a ways to go, and that progress is uneven. It's more in some areas than others. Can you talk a little bit about precision medicine? Now, this is one of the areas that has gotten so much attention, and some of the critics would say that it's gotten uh, somewhat hyped and maybe out ahead of itself. We see a lot of TV ads about medical centers promising personalized precision medicine. And yet the, um, the, the biggest precision medicine trial in the world, which is the NCI MATCH trial, is having not the most spectacular results. Um, in fact, some people say that the results are disappointing. Um, could you tell us what you, how you define precision medicine, first of all, and then whether you're disappointed about what has happened on the NCI MATCH trial so far? Yeah, so um, I think that a lot of the, the controversy stems to around a problem with the definition. So if, if you talk about precision oncology as the thing I described in the beginning, this movement over you know, decades to better define patients molecularly and treat them based on the features of their, their tumor, that's sort of non-controversial. Everybody believes in better pathology for patients. The part that is, uh, is controversial is in, in um, patients with advanced disease who failed all of their therapy, do those patients really benefit from additional sequencing? So, the, you know, taking the tumor DNA and looking for mutations and allocating therapy to, based on the mutations. And that's what the MATCH trial was. And the MATCH trial is a work in progress. We've only, uh, you know, it had sort of 40 arms to it. We've discussed about, you know, 10% of them at meetings yet. So it's, I think, too early to say what the results of it 
in terms of efficacy really are. But from a few points of view, it's already a success. For example, the MATCH trial accrued 6,000 patients two years ahead of schedule. It's one of the fastest accruing trials the NCI has ever done. And many of those patients were out in the community, not at some cancer center, but they were you know, at a community oncology practice where they could you know, drive 10 minutes to see their doctor. So you know, this is a big problem for us in clinical trials of accruing diverse patient populations in community setting. And MATCH already looks like a big advance of that. And uh, you know, I don't think anybody's wondering, is this or isn't this a way to go in oncology? What we're seeing now is, is lots of match-like trials start. So there's a pancreatic cancer version of match. There's a leukemia version of match. There are multiple lung cancer versions of match. So that, I think that paradigm is really the way forward in oncology. Uh, it is true that the vast majority of patients, not the vast, but maybe 90% of patients who go on those trials don't benefit. But some do, and some patients benefit a lot. And this is in a population where nothing else has worked, a highly refractory population. So the expectations in such a population should be you know, tempered. But a few of those patients have had very marvelous responses and have really benefited. So it's still early days. I would just add that you know, we're working very closely now with the NCI, probably closer than we ever have on trying to um, align our regulatory policy around some of the scientific work that, uh, that the NCI is doing. Um, and the collaboration is extremely close, so close that Ned even plays on our basketball team. Um, we accidentally broke his finger. <laughs> How often do you play with him? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't play. They don't bring me out. <laughs> he plays with the medical review staff in the oncology division. <laughs> but, um, Surprisingly aggressive, the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it really is going to be a transformative time. And, and, and Ned's leadership has been outstanding at the NCI in terms of, of bringing the two agencies closer together. You've there, there's one important point to make about it, by the way, which a, a real advance for patients, in my opinion, has been the ability to get this sort of testing out in the community through uh, both the FDA approval and CMS coverage decisions related to next generation sequencing in cancer. And that was a really difficult bureaucratic thing to do, to figure out how to approve that and cover it at the same time. And I think that was a heroic set of decisions that uh, the, the government really got right, and it's really great news for patients. So, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, um, Dr. Sharpless is referring to the coverage decision, the approval and coverage decision for advanced sequencing of uh, cancer patients with, with uh, serious cancers. Um, and one of the issues involved in that is the cost of testing so many um, patients. And the question is, if the private insurers are not paying for it, only Medicare is paying for it, how do you get, uh, how do you deal with those costs? And just in general, how do you deal with the price of all these therapies? You're not responsible for prices, but you've been outspoken about it. Well, the coverage is a challenge. And I think with respect to next generation sequencing and some of this testing, the costs are coming down quite dramatically. So I think the future is going to look very different um, just even a couple of years from now, if you look what's happened at the, uh, around the cost of uh, whole genome sequencing and pharmacogenomic uh, arrays. But I do think that we have a challenge right now um, with some of these technologies. I, I remember the days of the radio pharmaceuticals. I was at uh, CMS at the time um, that we made decisions around the radio pharmaceuticals, and I think that we made the wrong decisions around those drugs. Those drugs were effective. We made coverage decisions that left hospitals underwater for the delivery of those drugs, and hospitals stopped prescribing them, and it basically destroyed the radio pharmaceutical industry um, for the most part. You didn't see investment going into the development of those drugs, and I was on the board of a radio pharmaceutical company was on, when I was on the other side of this, and, and we went bankrupt. Uh, you know, we didn't go bankrupt, we sold the company um, because it was so hard to advance those, those therapeutics because of the reimbursement environment. I do worry about that same construct now with respect to CAR-T. Um, I think that we haven't really formulated what the reimbursement approach is going to be to CAR-T. 
Um, a, a lot of hospitals that are prescribing those drugs now on the inpatient side are losing money or aren't getting reimbursed. Um, there's a sort of arbitrage between the outpatient delivery of those drugs and the inpatient delivery of those drugs, and a lot of them now, are, so far, at least right now, are labeled for inpatient use only. That could change. The labels on those drugs could change, and they can go into the outpatient setting where they're reimbursed differently under Part B. Um, but but we, if we don't get that right, we have the potential to choke off a really exciting area of development. And if you look at the pipeline right now for CAR-T, there's a lot of late-stage development. There's a, not a lot of early-stage development. And some people will say, you know, that has nothing to do with reimbursement, that it's because the CAR-T haven't proven themselves to be effective in solid tumors. And so, you know, most of the people have applied them to liquid tumors, and most of that development's going on. I don't think that's right. I think some of the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs are pulling back a little bit from this space, uh, a little bit cautious about what the reimbursement landscape is going to look like. And that's a, that's, that's a very worrisome sign to me, if in fact that's true. Could you explain to us civilians what CAR-T is? Do you want to better than yeah. me? <laughs> I can do it, but he's you got the expert Obviously, here. <laughs> it almost sounds like science fiction when you tell somebody, but it's basically you take their T cells out, genetically engineer them to do something, to make them sort of cancer-fighting robots, if you will, reinfuse them, and then in some patients that will cure the cancer, particularly certain kinds of lymphoma and leukemia, as Scott alluded to. So, it, you know, and... You know, like the, the Steve Rosenberg patient with breast cancer had a, a not quite CAR-T, had engineered T-cells, a similar bespoke, highly personalized therapy. That worked in a patient with widely metastatic advanced breast cancer who'd failed multiple other lines of therapy. You know, so th these approaches, as Scott said, are, are really um, promising and have the ability to cure patients who failed all other therapies, but they're really complex. And so these issues that he alluded to are a real problem. The one thing you learn in government is when you have an expert with you, use them. <laughs> but, you know, the issue right now is that on, in, in the inpatient side, they're being reimbursed much less than on the outpatient side. And, and the, some of the drugs, because they have um, risks associated with them, particularly with the uh, first infusion, um, they're labeled for inpatient use only because you need close monitoring. Now, those labels could change because the reality is that the difference between delivering something on the inpatient side and delivering on the outpatient side sometimes is a difference of, you know, an elevator ride one floor up. So, you know, you could potentially foresee labels of the drugs changing to say, well, if you're within five minutes of an ICU where you can receive critical care in case you have an infusion reaction, um, you know, you can deliver it in an outpatient setting. Because most of the outpatient infusion centers of the academic institutions really are adjacent to the hospital. So these drugs potentially could be delivered in out outpatient settings where you can monitor the patients and get them into an ICU setting. So that would be, you know, that would be a way to get them out from this sort of temporary um, reimbursement challenge that they're facing. But it's not a long-term solution. We need a long-term solution. Let me ask you about a couple of epidemics that you've talk, talked about and that um, you're in the midst of trying to deal with. One is the opioid epidemic, which is killing tens of thousands of people a year. How do you balance your um, efforts to try to curb the opioid um, epidemic and some of the um, uh, careless prescribing, I would have to say, against the cancer patients need to get um, pain relief for some of the intense, uh, sometimes end-of-life um, pain that they're... Well, I was just at a meeting of, with uh, ASCO and NCCN that the FDA worked with those two groups to try to um, develop evidence-based guidelines on the proper prescribing of opioids in the oncology setting. I think that the way we're going to address this, you know, a lot of the addiction has been formed in a medical setting. Um, historically, a good part of the addiction was people who became medically addicted, and we didn't think people could become medically addicted if you were treating pain in the medical setting, we thought, well, if you were getting opioids for, for legitimate pain, you wouldn't become addicted. We now know that's not true. 
Um, I think FDA has a mandate to try to rationalize prescribing and bring down the rate of prescribing, the rate of dispensing, the number of pills that get dispensed, also the dosage strengths that are dispensed as a way to reduce the amount of people who become medically addicted. Um, but we need to do that in a way that doesn't disadvantage patients who need these drugs. And some patients are going to need these drugs for prolonged periods of time, um, and they'll require chronic therapy, particularly cancer patients who might have metastatic cancer pain or might have painful syndromes as a sequelae of, of chemotherapy, neuropathies and other kinds of consequences of treatment. And I think that the way to address this is with evidence-based guidelines, not consensus guidelines. Consensus guidelines have a place, but consensus guidelines basically are an aggregation of what we currently know. Um, what you need is evidence-based guidelines that are derived from um, either retrospectively or prospectively gathered evidence about what is actually used and what patients actually need in order to treat pain in different clinical settings. Uh, and if they're done right, they can form the basis of recommendations that you can put into drug labeling. And once they get into drug labeling, they can form the basis of things that are used by hospital systems, um, EMRs, prescribing platforms as a way to try to rationalize prescribing based on the indication for which the drug's being used. I think that's the proper way to address this. And um, in the setting of, of trying to develop evidence-based guidelines, I think the evidence is going to demonstrate that for certain situations, you need to allow more liberal prescribing. And that's certainly, I think, true in certain settings of oncology. You've both talked a lot about another epidemic, which is smoking. And even though smoking rates are way down, um, it's, smoking is still killing almost half a million people in the United States a year. And um, Dr. Gottlieb, you're taking several steps to try to um, curb cigarette smoking, but also deal with what you've called an epidemic of youth use of e-cigarettes. And um, we're assuming that there's going to be more news on that coming out this week, and I wonder if you would um, preview it a bit. There were reports last week about FDA-planned efforts to cut back on the sale of um, flavored e-cigarettes in convenience stores and gas stations. What can you tell us about what well, you're doing? Well, there was your report, and FDA notably <laughs> didn't ask for any kind of retraction or correction. So, um, Thank you for that. You know, look, I, when I set out last summer, I made an announcement that we were, we were going to try to use the um, authorities we had under, under the Tobacco Control Act and the mandate we had to reduce smoking rates to try to accelerate the um, migration of adult smokers off of combustible tobacco um, onto, presumably, hopefully off of nicotine altogether, but for adults who still want to get access to satisfying levels of nicotine, we, we've uh, promulgated policy to try to um, create more innovation when it comes to nicotine replacement therapy and also to try to accommodate the development of new innovations, electronic nicotine delivery systems like e-cigarettes, that we think could be a viable alternative for adults who still want to get access to nicotine um, and want to do it through an inhaled route and don't want all the risks associated with combustion. And I've said all along, if we can migrate every adult smoker completely onto an e-cigarette, it will have a profound public health impact. E-cigarettes are not risk-free. They certainly have risks associated with them, but they are certainly um, safer than combustion. I think we can all accept that. But I said back then, I said in my confirmation hearing, and I've said dozens and dozens of times since, that this cannot come at the expense of addicting a whole generation of kids on nicotine through these e-cigarettes. And that's, in fact, what we're seeing. We're going to announce data this week um, that's going to show over a 75% increase in the year-over-year um, -year increase in the number of high school students who are using e-cigarettes, um, almost a 50% increase in the number of middle, middle school students using e-cigarettes. And these are off of already high baselines. So these are big numbers. I think 3.5 million high school students uh, if I remember the data correctly, a sharp increase in the number of high school students reporting that they use um, e-cigarettes 20 or more days a month, almost 6% almost of all high school students now using e-cigarettes um, um, 20 days or more per month. Um, so the old argument from the tobacco industry was, well, kids are experimenting with it, but they're not really using it regularly. Well, they are using it regularly. 
Um, and you know the patterns of use are is that they experiment with them, they use them, start using them a little more regularly, then they go on to become long-term users. And we now know that um, kids who initiate on nicotine through e-cigarettes are at a higher risk of using combustible tobacco later. And in fact, combustible tobacco rates have also gone up um, among youth. So there's no good data that we're seeing right now, and we're creating a whole pool of risk for the future um, to reaccelerate smoking rates among young people after seeing historic declines. And so. We're going to have to step into the market, and we will, uh, and we're going to have to create some speed bumps, unfortunately, uh, that might make it a little harder for adults to get access to the full range of products that they want in order to make it a lot harder for kids to get access. We have to address the appeal and the access that these products have to kids, and the primary um, vehicle for appeal is the flavors, the fruity flavors, and the primary vehicle by which they're getting access are not the online sites. Actually, a very small percentage of these products are being sold through online channels. Um, it's the convenience stores. Uh, and I don't, we, we did a, the largest single enforcement action in the history of the agency where we did an undercover operation to target sales of uh, e-cigarettes to youth and convenience stores. Based on the resources we put against that, we expected to get 300 violations. We got 1,300 violations. We now have a sustained effort underway. Uh, we're putting uh, significant resources against looking at e-cigarette sales at convenience stores to kids, and that's going to be ongoing in perpetuity. Um, but we need to address the accessibility of these products at convenience stores. So we're going to be putting in place some additional restrictions on how these products can be sold, particularly the flavored products. Um, we're going to differentiate between the cartridge-based systems and the open tank systems. The open tank vaping systems are by and large used by adults. They're sold in adult-only vaping stores, of which I believe there's around 10,000 in this country. It's the cartridge-based systems that are sold in the convenience stores that are getting into the hands of the kids. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at statistics now. You talked about tobacco smoking rates coming down. They have come down. And that's my legal mandate is to bring down smoking rates. But if you look at tobacco use overall, and e-cigarettes are tobacco products, whether people accept that or not, and we get a lot of criticism around that. They are tobacco products. They are legally tobacco products. You're looking at statistics right now where almost a third of all um, American teens, kids, are using some form of tobacco product. And it's not just the e-cigarettes. The fastest growing um, segment, the biggest segment of use among black teens is cigars. The flavored cigars are a big problem. Um, and are you going to do anything about flavored cigars? We're, we are looking at it very carefully, the flavors in the cigars, and I think we will, we, you can expect us to look at um, pursuing action in that. And we've, we've identified that as, as something we're deeply concerned about. And the other issue is the flavors that remain in the combustible cigarettes. 50%, 52% of all kids between the age of 12 and 17, when they initiate on cigarettes, use menthol cigarettes. Um, for African-American teens, it's over 70%. Um, and so the menthol masks some of the um, distasteful aspects of using tobacco, so it makes it easier for kids to initiate on cigarettes. Um, menthol is a significant problem. Uh, I don't think that the cigarette industry ought to be marketing products um, that, if not targeted to kids, make it exceptionally easy for kids to initiate on uh, combustible tobacco. Dr. Sharpless, you've talked a lot about the need to overhaul clinical trials, and you've talked a little bit about this here, but tell us a little bit more about how you think that clinical trials need to be overhauled to um, produce quicker results, cheaper results, and things that get to the patient um, more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, it's important to say that like everything that we do successfully in a patient with cancer is comes about as the result of a clinical trial. So the ability to do clinical trials rapidly and efficiently at low cost is critical to making progress against cancer. But um, you know, because of that change in oncology that I alluded to, 
uh, clinical trials had to change a lot for that. So, you know, in the old days, we'd have 800 patients in arm A and 800 patients in arm B, and they'd all get basically the same treatment with one slight difference. And if there was a very modest change in survival, that was considered a positive trial. And now that we've appreciated cancer is so heterogeneous, and you know there are 100 different kinds of breast cancer, whatever. So you know now it requires uh, much smaller trials with molecularly defined populations. Those are much harder to administer. They're, they're more complex trials. Understanding what's a positive result is hard if you don't have a contemporaneous control arm, for example. So uh, the structure of clinical trials has had to change quite a bit for oncology, and will continue to have to evolve. It, it includes a lot of things, you know, the centralization of some of the bureaucracy, uh, getting, you know, standardized testing on certain patients. But a, a big part of making progress, as I said, is really making sure we get complete data on all those patients longitudinally for a long time so that we can really learn from every patient. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's like our mission to learn from every patient that we put on a clinical trial in oncology. And so uh, that has really involved a substantial redesign of how we test can you know, drugs in patients with cancer. I'll just, I'll just follow that quickly. I think, um, and, and Ned's been a great leader in this regard in terms of trying to reimagine how, how to develop um, products in a space. But we've tried to follow with trying to codify some of these ideas and guidance and in policy that we promulgated looking at master protocols in the oncology setting, looking at basket trials, um, tissue agnostic approvals, the ability to test drugs in, in multiple um, tumor settings based on a common molecular marker and approve drugs based on their ability to interfere with that molecular driver of cancer as opposed to, you know, cancer in the pancreas. We're looking at cancer driven by this marker regardless of whether tumor arises. And one of the things that we're going to be talking a lot more about coming very soon um, is what we can do to increase the burdens on clinical trial sites. Uh, I think a lot of the costs of clinical trials are, um, you know, QC that doesn't necessarily, in a digital age where we can collect information more effectively and audit it more effectively, um, there's QC being applied a lot, a lot of times by CROs. That's very costly. Um, and not uh, quality control, sorry. That's, uh, that's a lot of forms. <laughs> a lot of forms, yeah. A lot of paperwork. Um, that's not necessarily doing much to add to the overall, um, our overall ability to ensure the integrity of the data, integrity of the trial, but adding a lot of cost and making it much harder for, um, you know, maybe community settings to conduct clinical trials. We're going to be looking to scale a lot of that back. We have some specific policies we'll be rolling, rolling out. Um, that I think will make it less burdensome on providers and try to democratize the ability to conduct clinical trials. Um, you know, I happen to think a lot of these, these requirements, they sort of get put in place and there's a sort of a, an enterprise built around it within the um, CRO community. Um, contract and we can, research, contract research organizations. I'm full of acronyms today. I think we can roll a lot of that back. Okay, great. Well, um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you both very much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. And our next panel will uh, begin shortly. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.